and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Sergio Verdugo, Associate Professor of Law at the Universidad del Desarrollo, Chile. We will discuss his work on constitution making and constitutional courts, specifically in relation to current constitutional disputes occurring in Chile. So welcome to the show, Sergio. Thank you, Ryan, for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Ah, oh, the pleasure's all mine. I'm really glad to have you on. I'm so glad that Felipe introduced us. We have a great common friend. <laughs> <laughs> so, Sergio, I got to say, um, before preparing for this interview, I knew very little about the structure of the Chilean constitution and the nature of the Chilean judiciary. And I got to, and I, I still don't know very much, right? I mean, what I know is based on what I read to prepare for the interview. And I suspect a lot of the listeners uh, will be in the same boat. So I wonder if we could start by you kind of providing a brief history of the Chilean constitution, um, it seems like an especially important period for the current constitution was sort of during the, the Pinochet period and, and what happened to the constitution afterwards. I, I wonder if you could kind of, kind of walk us through the development of the Chilean constitution. Of course, Ryan. I'm, I'm happy to, to do that. So the, the current constitution that is in force right now was created during the, during the Pinochet dictatorship in 1980. Uh, and that constitution was was written by um, by a committee composed by lawyers, mainly from the Catholic University, um, and they were inspired in Christian principles uh, mainly, but also in, in in they wanted to build a presidential regime, uh, a strong presidential regime that could uh, fix the problems that they saw that uh, we were having uh, in the past, in particularly. Uh, during the agenda regime, the socialist regime. Um, so the constitution, so the constitution was made um, and was influenced by the interests of the dictatorship. So there's, there was a bunch of institutions that were not really democratic, uh, like the National Security Council, for example, that uh, was uh, half of its members were members of the military forces and they were appointing a couple of judges. They had some sorts of power. So uh, when the transition to democracy came, uh, usually countries decide, have two options, right? They call for a constituent assembly or they fix the current constitution they have. So Chile is in the second group of countries. And what, what, what happened in Chile is that the, um, the opposition uh, got a, negotiate, a negotiated transition with the incumbent regime led by General Pinochet. Uh, so the constitution was not totally replaced. It was amended. Uh, and since 1990 uh, to today, uh, we have symbolically the Pinochet Constitution in force, but with many amendments, and those amendments have democratized the Constitution. So it, it's completely the opposite as Americans will do, right? Like Americans praise their founding fathers, uh, right? Like the, they have a lot of prestige. You can criticize a lot of stuff about them, uh, but everyone in the U.S. wants to be on the side of the Constitution. Uh, in Chile, that doesn't happen, right? Originalism as a technique of interpretation um, is not really a legitimate technique of interpretation, despite the fact that some judges use it. Uh, and the constitution in itself, especially symbolically, divides a lot. Um, my own view uh, is that the, the literature here is divided in two groups. Uh, one group is 
they want to replace the constitution entirely, so they are promoting a constitution-making process. And when there are important crises related to inequality or to things that um, were created during the dictatorship, this second group usually takes these demands and associate them with the need for making a new constitution. And then there's another group, uh, which is a Burkean group, I will classify it. Um, this group believes that constitutions should change an incremental, evolutive, and even slow way, uh, but not by uh, instant uh, replacements that could bring more problems. Uh, and I think the state of the literature now in Chile is crossed by these themes. Not sure. yeah. There was a big amendment in 2005 uh, uh, by Ricardo Lagos that eliminated most of the authoritarian enclaves that the constitution has. And then there was an amendment in 2015 that replaced um, the, the electoral law. And that by changing the electoral law of the Congress, it switched the dynamics, uh, the electoral dynamics that were designed by the Pinochet regime. And so now we, the country moved from a two-coalition uh, system uh, to a multi-party regime in, in practice. So, so one thing I was wondering about was sort of how fundamentally did the 1980 constitutional change like break from the prior constitution and sort of what was the basis, if any, for the kind of legitimacy of the adoption of that constitution as compared to how constitutional change has happened after the 1980 constitution and sort of like, what does the process for constitutional change look like in Chile today? So uh, the constitutional, the constitutional change process of the current version of the constitution or of the well, I think I'm kind of thinking of both, like sort of like how did the 1980 constitution get adopted and how does that compare to the way constitutional change happens now? So, so Chile was um, Chile had a very competitive democratic system in the 70s and a socialist president was elected, Salvador Allende. That government lasted for three years and then a coup came, a coup that was organized. The Americans were also involved, including Kissinger, and that coup was led by General Pinochet. And the, um, the narrative that they built was not a democratic narrative. It was an authoritarian narrative. So they were appealing to the traditions of, um, of the Chilean constitutional values. Uh, they were appealing to the leaders of the, that founded the country, people like the Cortales, for example. And they were also claiming the side of the rule of law. Uh, they were saying that the socialist regime broke the rule of law. They broke the constitution. Um, and initially, they wanted the, the narrative of the authoritarian regime actually was to save the constitution that was in force. It was the constitution of 1925. But they ended up replacing it. Uh, and they created a new constitution in 1980. Uh, and that constitution was enacted by the Junta, which was an organ composed by the, the heads of all the armed forces and of the police. Uh, and then it was approved by a referendum. But it was a referendum that was held uh, under non-democratic conditions. So the freedom of, I mean, it was a dictatorship. Freedom of speech was severely uh, undermined and other political rights as well. So that referendum, even though the regime wanted to use it to give democratic legitimacy to the constitution, it actually didn't succeed to do so. Nobody takes seriously that referendum today. Um, so that, that's how the constitution was approved uh, in 1980. Uh, so 
when the democratic forces wanted to amend the constitution before the democracy started again in 1990, they needed the approval of Pinochet because he had the power in reality to make the amendments. Um, and the, the procedure of that time required also a referendum. So Pinochet agreed to certain amendments that will, um, in exchange of other things. Um, so, so, and then he, he was no longer a president. I mean, he tried to be a president, but he lost the referendum. Um, but he was still the head of the army. So democracy started again. But with all these authoritarian enclaves, which involved also having Pinochet, uh, an autonomous military that was led by Pinochet still. Um, and every time there was a scandal involving the, 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 pre the previous regime, the Pinochet regime, um, there was the threat that Pinochet will you know, put the tanks on the street again. Uh, so it was. So it took some. It took many years for the um, for the system to move from authoritarian, from a fully authoritarian regime to a democratic regime, uh, and we had some sort of an hybrid regime with a lot of authoritarian enclaves during a long time. And and I was telling you before, like the 2005 uh, amendment was very important because it, it eliminated the senators that were not elected. Uh, it, it eliminated the powers of the National Security Council, and it made many other changes. Uh, it changed completely the structure of the Constitutional Court, for example. Um, but all these changes, including the 2005 reform and the other reforms that have been in between, have been gradually being implemented. Uh, so one of the questions that scholars like to ask is, where are we heading to? Which democracy we want to have? Uh, because we haven't really discussed... Um, in freedom, right? Like free people that agree to discuss what political system do we want to have or where are we going to. All our changes have been negotiated by the uh, elected politicians uh, now uh, with the hairs of the dictatorship. So this creates a lot of, a lot of problems, um, legitimacy problems. Mm -hmm. Well, so I understand, to, to shift gears a little bit, I understand that... Chile has a kind of unique high judicial system in terms of how it's structured with more than one <laughs> like high highest mm -hmm. court. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the judicial system in Chile, you know, kind of what the different courts are like and what their respective authority is to the to the best that we know for sure. So, so Chile is a unitary state. So, so we don't have different levels as in the in the U.S. Uh, there's um there's a judiciary, a judicial power that is led by a Supreme Court. Then we have different courts of appeal that are under the power of the Supreme Court, and then the the lower judges. But separated from that system, which we call the judiciary, when we refer to the poder judicial, the the judicial power, we refer to that pyramidal structure, right? Uh, starting with the Supreme Court. But besides that, we also have a constitutional court that is separated from the, from the Supreme Court, and there's no hierarchy between them. Uh, and this system was imported from Europe. Uh, it was created first in Austria, uh, and then it was popularized in many different countries in Europe. Um, there's the Italian version, the German version, the French version. And Chile has now a mixture between the French version of the system and the Italian version. Um, the French version means that the constitutional court can uh, evaluate the constitutionality of bills, you know, um, so laws that are not 
yet in force while they have been while the Congress is discussing those statutes. Um, it's called the preventive system because it, it, it can prevent the, um, the, the law to actually be passed. And then there's um, a system that we call ex post or repressive system because it's, it evaluates the, the laws that are in force. Uh, and this is taken from the Italian system. Uh, and the Constitutional Court revises these, uh, the, 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 these statutes, and this creates tensions because the courts that are, that are mandated to apply these statutes are outside the Constitutional Court, right? So you have a, a judiciary that is supposed to enforce the laws, and then you have a Constitutional Court that is supposed to evaluate those laws. So this creates tensions, and these tensions are... Um, are really frequent uh, in comparative law. Um, I, I was reading a study that compares uh, the, the constitutional courts of South Korea and of Taiwan. Both courts were also imported from this European model. And in, in, in both countries, it has created certain, certain issues. And uh, we have seen also uh, tensions in, in countries like Spain, uh, a country that also follows this, this model. Um, in Chile, the system was created by a constitutional amendment to the 1925 constitution in 1970. Um, and that was the year where the court, the constitutional court was created. Uh, so the constitutional court was never seen as part of the judiciary. It was not supposed to be a judicial um, organ uh, in itself. It was supposed to um, to protect the judges by dealing with the political things that judges should not deal with, if, if, if you know what I mean. Well, maybe you could talk a little bit about sort of the composition of those two high courts. Like, where do the members of the Supreme Court, like, how do they become members as opposed to kind of who's mm -hmm. sitting on the constitutional court? And what's the perception, kind of the public perception of the relationship between the two or the kind of legitimacy of each court? Of course. So, so the Supreme, so the, both courts are composed in different ways. Um, most Supreme Court judges are career judges. I mean, they, they have a judicial career before being appointed as judges. Um, so the, the, the Supreme Court is composed by 21 members. 16 of them are, have a judicial career, and five of them needs to be outsiders of the judiciary. All of them are appointed by the president from a list of five candidates that the same Supreme Court proposes. And then it needs the consent of the Senate. So the three branches of government participate in the nomination of new judges. This has created two dynamics. So the first one is that the, the supermajority recording in the Senate has forced the system to have sort of a quota. So, so they need to agree on which justice they're, they're going to um, name uh, be, be across different parties. So they usually agree on um, color, I don't know, color blue and then color red or wh whatever, whatever you want to, you want to call it. Um, and that, that's very, that's very um, uh, important to know. Uh, but then these judges are very independent. I mean, they, they last for life until they get 75 years old. Um, and because most of them have previous usual careers, they are also influenced by the dynamics of the internal judiciary, which involves also attending the school of judges, the Academia Judicial, the Academy of Judges. And so all this Chilean legalism, uh, Chile is a very positivistic country um, in the way judges deal with us. 
So most of the judges have, have this training. So that's the Supreme Court. Um, and the, the Constitutional Court, is, 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 it has 10 members. Uh, and the 10 members are appointed in different ways. So three of them are appointed by the president. Three of them are appointed by the Supreme Court. And four of them are appointed by the Congress. Two by the Senate and two by the Chamber of Representatives with the consent of the Senate. And the judges don't last very long. They only last for nine years and they are renewed periodically. So uh, the dynamics that this creates is that um, the judges kind of, they're not supposed to represent their appointers, but it's inevitably that public opinion or the press uh, links them to their appointers. Um, so, and, and there's no career judges in the court, in the constitutional court. So instead of having a more legalistic profile, the Constitutional Court has a more academic and political profile. Um, this is new in Chile, and it started in 2005 uh, with the reform of the court. Previous to that reform to the Constitutional Court, most of the judges that were on the court were, uh, were former judges of other courts as well, uh, or were law professors um, with a different profile than the ones that we know now. Like now we have politicians. So, for example, the current chief justice of the Constitutional Court is the former chief of staff of President Piñera, which is something that it was a scandal uh, in Chile when, when, when Piñera appointed her. Uh, and it was a scandal when she got the votes to be uh, appointed as president of the court. Uh, but, but still, like it's, it's, it's part of the composition. It's, it's, it's inside the rules. Uh, it can happen. So the, the Constitutional Court has a way more political profile than the Supreme Court. And this creates different sorts of um, legitimacy issues for each of them. Mm -hmm. Well, so I understand that there, as you mentioned, are often tensions between the Supreme Court and the Constitutional Court, and that there's a particular tension right, right now where they seem kind of at loggerheads over the resolution of a particular issue. So I wonder, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the the background of this particular dispute that's being presented right now and sort of how it's playing out and sort of how you think it might or should be resolved. Mm. So the story, we can track the story to 1925, actually. <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah, but I, I, want, I will be very quick, I promise. <laughs> so the, the judicial review power was created in that year uh, and it was assigned to the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court never really used its power in significant ways. Uh, and it didn't use it until 2005, which was the year in which the Congress decided to remove the, that power from the Supreme Court and to give it to the Constitutional Court. Until that time, the Constitutional Court only had the preventive power, like a, a sort of abstract judicial review power before the laws were promulgated. Uh, and the Supreme Court was in charge of uh, uh, using the Constitution in the actual cases and reviewing the laws if necessary. But the Supreme Court was never really used that power in relevant, relevant ways, uh, mainly because of the uh, extremely formalistic culture that um, is impregnated in the in the in the judiciary. Um, judges don't feel comfortable in Chile with using broad political principles. Like there's no such thing as a Dorkinian judge in Chile, at, at least in those days. Um, so this power was removed from the Supreme Court uh, and it was transferred to the Constitutional Court. 
Uh, and the Supreme Court was not happy about it. Um, everybody agreed that it was a good idea, like academics, politicians, except for the Supreme Court. I mean, they were removing a power from the Supreme Court. But they kept another power that the Supreme Court has, which is, it doesn't imply judicial review, but it implies the protection of constitutional rights against different sorts of acts, like administrative acts or against uh, actions made by private individuals. Uh, so the Supreme Court kept that power, uh, and, but the court is not allowed to strike down uh, legal provisions. If the court thinks that there's a legal provision that is uh, being inf that is infringing constitutional rights, it needs to send the case to the constitutional court. And then the constitutional court is going to uh, reply by saying, you know, this legal provision is against the constitution or is not against the constitution, and it's going to give an order about how to um, how to deal with it. It can say one of two things. It can say, do not use this legal provision to that actual case. Or it can say, you know, there's no problem, so you decide how you solve the case, but the legal provision is perfectly applicable. And then the Supreme, the case goes back to the Supreme Court, and then the Supreme Court is supposed to decide uh, the case, right, uh, using the order of the, of the Constitutional Court. So this is the Italian model, uh, and it's not... It's not only the Supreme Court that does this, it's also the Courts of Appeals. Um, and the problem of this uh, Italian model is that the final decision on the actual case is the Supreme Court. But the constitutional question has been answered before by the Constitutional Court. So uh, what happens is that sometimes uh, the Courts of Appeal or the Supreme Court have a different interpretation than the one that is offered by the Constitutional Court. So the Constitutional Court can, can say, for example, this law interpreted in a certain way is unconstitutional. But then the Supreme Court interprets that same law in a different way. And this different interpretation is, we don't know whether it's constitutional or not, right? And so, so the final decision will be part of the Supreme Court. And there's, um, there's a very important judge in the Supreme Court. His name is uh, Sergio Muñoz. Uh, and he's... Um, he is probably the most activist judge in Chile or the most prominent of the activist judges in Chile. And he recently said in a judicial decision made by the Supreme Court, in a, in a, in a decision that he wrote, in a dicta, uh, it was not important to solve the case, but it, it was still important for politically. He said in that decision that the Supreme Court now has the power to revise the decisions of the Constitutional Court that violate constitutional rights. So... If the constitutional court violates any constitutional right, then according to the Muñoz doctrine, uh, the Supreme Court is going to be enabled to revise those decisions uh, using the, um, the mechanisms that the constitution gives to the, to the court now. Uh, and this, of course, is uh, it, it, it's something new. Uh, so the constitutional court reacted. Uh, all the judges of the constitutional court uh, agreed that this was unacceptable. And they release this public declaration, which is something that the constitutional court sometimes does, but it's not that common. It's not common that the constitution, that the courts in general release these sorts of declarations because it's not a usual decision. It's, it has a complicated nature. And so they release this, this declaration rejecting what uh, Munoz said, Justice Munoz said. And then uh, Justice Munoz replied, um, the Supreme Court is divided in chambers, so it, so it, it replied using the chamber that he's leaving. 
Um, and he said in that reply that the opinion of the chamber is also the opinion of the Supreme Court. But in parallel, the president of the Supreme Court, who is not part of the chamber that Muñoz integrates, said uh, was very ambiguous to lead the case. And he went and met with the president of the Constitutional Court, and they met in front of the cameras. And he didn't say this explicitly, but it was implied in, the, in his declaration that the opinion of Muñoz was not the opinion of all the justices. And this is at least the way I read uh, this situation. So the, this happened a couple of weeks ago. It's a very recent development, and we don't know what will happen in the end. But the, branches, the, the other branches of government are worried about this. The Constitutional Court, um, the prestige of the Constitutional Court uh, is it's low, especially among um, left-wing legislators. Uh, and, the, and, and, the, and the Senate, uh, so the president of the Senate, who is a left-wing legislator, released another declaration supporting the Supreme Court. And this created uh, a political problem. Um, so, so now the debate is ongoing. And it's, it's really fun for academics, but it's for a bad reason. yeah yeah i mean so i mean this kind of battle for legitimacy seems really legitimacy and power seems really unique and interesting i mean how do you see it playing out and sort of like in the ideal outcome like what do you think the relationship should be like what would be the right resolution in your mind so i don't think so we can we can have these discussions at the micro level, at the micro design, or at the at the macro design. So in the macro design, we can discuss whether the system of having two courts uh, that don't have clear hierarchy between them is a good system or not. Uh, I think it's a good system for a country like Chile. But then, if we have that system, we need to accept the fact that these sorts of conflicts are gonna exist. They exist in most of the countries that have this system, at least the ones that I have looked at. They exist in Colombia, in Portugal, in Italy. I mean, they're very common. So the good question is not about uh, how to eliminate this problem, but it's about how to uh, deal with it. Um, And the tensions will continue to to exist. So I think that the Italian uh, design is a recipe for, um, for a very disorganized and chaotic way to run with this. So I I would just abandon Italian design and I will go for the German design, which they have what they call the constitutional complaint that allows the the, the constitutional court to have the final word. Um, But I'm not sure if this is going to be feasible because this requires a constitutional amendment. Um, Although in Chile we're discussing a lot about the fact that we need an important constitutional amendment to the court. So maybe this will be part of that agenda. But it's impossible to know now. Um, there was a working group of uh, 20-something academics that, were, that, are, that are also adv- constitutional advisors of legislators, and they agreed on a system. Uh, and, I th- and I think that their proposal is, is, is really interesting. Um, maybe because you know, it's a bipartisan committee uh, with, advice, with legal advisors from different politicians, maybe this uh, draft will serve as the basis for a political agreement. It's too early to know, but it's possible. Mm. Well, so, Sergio, in closing, it seems like the elephant in the room here is that Chile is currently experiencing a state of emergency. Um, and 
it seems to have constitutional implications. And, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what's happening right now and what, if anything, it says about kind of public perceptions of the legitimacy of of the Chilean constitution and people's expectations uh, of of their representation. Thank you very much for asking this, Brian. Actually, I, I was feeling a little bit bad that we were not speaking about this before um, because it's such an important topic. Uh, and the other discussion, like the war of courts, it sounds like a very a discussion that interests a lot of lawyers, but it's, I don't know, there was another professor from University of Chile yesterday that tweeted that, come on, constitutional law professor, stop discussing about the courts. We should discuss about this big elephant on the room right now, which involves also the emergency powers of the president. So the, the problems um, apparently started with a decision made by the panel of experts that they decided to elevate the price of the ticket of the metro, the underground system in Santiago. Um, so protests started against this uh, decision. And then other demands that are important in the Chilean system uh, started to merge with this protest. So the protest started to grow. Uh, and three secretaries of state of the current administration made declarations that were very unfortunate. Uh, and they, instead of dealing with the problem, they boosted the problem more. They gave more reasons to the people to be annoyed by this. So, for example... And the Minister of Economy uh, recommended the people to wake up earlier so they could get uh, lower prices in the, uh, in the tickets of the metro because, um, because if you go early, you get a lower price. And this was seen as a really offensive move because, of course, uh, he's speaking about from a privileged position. But the problem is not the, about the metro. The problem is broader. The problem is about the cost of life and about the inequality that Chile is having. Um, so this, so the metro is symbolic, but it, but it's not, but it's not the it's, it's not the core of the problem, and we should not understand it as the core of the problem. So the situation became violent, and we haven't seen this violent in a long time in Chile. And um, so around seventy metro stations were destroyed, um, around eighty supermarkets were destroyed, also including many supermarkets that belong to Walmart. And also uh, an electric company, the headquarters of an electric company, the whole building was in, in fire. Um, so the, like the situation got really, really violent. Uh, and of course, I think most people were protesting in pacific ways and they actually have a point. Uh, but also uh, other violent people uh, used this as an opportunity to take things to the extreme. Um, so, and Pineda, the president, this is my opinion, like he, he acted too late. Instead of offering a political solution, he treated the problem as a public disorder uh, solution. So he replied basically by throwing the police in the streets uh, and this aggravated the problem. More people went to the streets. The Communist Party um, released a declaration supporting this movement. Um, and these movements were, 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 were the, the symbolic part of the movement that started in the metro is that they called for not paying the metro, for not paying. So you could use the metro without paying it. But for doing that, you need to, you know, not respect any rules. Uh, so actually there was chaos in all the metro stations, uh, not only at Russia, but in general. Um, so uh, after all this violence uh, came 
out of hand, uh, Piñera, uh, the President Piñera decided to call for a state of emergency, which is regulated in the Constitution. Um, and the state of emergency allows him to, uh, you know, to ask the armed forces, the military, to go to the streets and to take control of the situation. Uh, and this is something we haven't seen in a long time. The last time this happened was with the earthquake uh, in 2010, but it was because of, you know, an earthquake, <laughs> not because of violence. Uh, and, and before that, it was in the dictatorship. And the dictatorship was not that long ago. So... Uh, Chile has a trauma with the dictatorship. Every time you you speak about armed forces going to the streets, uh, people get paralyzed, and, and you know it's depressing. Um, so it makes people remember um, all of this. And there's a big claim against the retirement funds in Chile. I mean, the the institutions, the, the financial institutions that administer the retirement funds, uh, and which were created during the dictatorship. So um, the demands also got mixed with that and with other different equality issues. Um, so now it's almost seven o'clock in Chile and I'm not allowed to go to the street because there's a curfew um, that is going to start at 7 p.m. here. So nobody is supposed to go out. If you go out, you will be detained, but not by a police, but by a military, by a soldier. It's every situation. Um, and so a couple of hours ago, uh, President Piñera met with the heads of the Senate, of the Chamber of Representatives, and of the Supreme Court. The heads of the Senate and of the Chamber of Representatives are part of the opposition. But, um, but not all the opposition uh, is supporting what Piñera is doing. Many of them are asking Piñera to take the armed forces out of the street uh, before having the possibility of having a conversation with him. Um, it's a, it's a tricky situation. It's, it's hard to know um, whether this this will imply more violence or less violence. It's probably too early to judge the government, but I can say that um, that the government acted too late, uh, and a political solution is necessary now. Uh, this is not a problem only of public disorder. This is a political problem, and it involves the legitimacy of the constitutions. And there are two constitutional issues here. One uh, is the way the president is using its emergency powers. Two is the legitimacy of the constitution. So Chileans have discussed the possibility of replacing the constitution entirely. And the people that believe that this is a good idea, uh, is, um, they're, they're writing posts and blogs and they're tweeting uh, about the fact that this crisis is only a symptom uh, of a deeper constitutional crisis that we have. Um, I, I, I kind of have a different opinion. I, I disagree with those, with part of those ideas, but it's an important debate because it affects the, the prestige of the Constitution. Mm. Well, maybe you could just briefly say a little something about why you disagree with the argument that the Constitution should be replaced as a whole and what you think the better approach would be. So, so my is... Uh, how to satisfy the expectations of political agreements, of broad political agreements, right? So people is disappointed by the political class um, because the, all the promises made uh, in the post-authoritarian um, scenario uh, have not been really fulfilled in a way that can satisfy, especially the, the more poor classes, right? So, for example, so 
the average um, income in Chile is around in dollars should be around six hundred dollars, maybe seven hundred dollars. Uh, but for paying the metro, you need to spend eighty dollars a month, right? Uh, so, so, so it's it's really bad. So, but I don't think that a constitutional replacement will solve any of these issues. Uh, it will only create expectations. There's a problem of how social rights are being protected and enforced. There's a problem with the healthcare system. There's a problem with the social security system. And I think that the political agreements should uh, have concrete plans about how to solve those problems. When you constitutionalize these problems, you're basically saying that you want to incorporate more social rights in the constitution, and that creates expectations. But writing uh, more rights in a piece of paper is a, is a cheap solution in, 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 my, in, in my point of view. I mean, it can be symbolically important, but it's meaningless if it doesn't come uh, with more concrete plans about how to tackle the real problems that Chileans care about. Um, so President Bachelet, uh, when she was ruling the country, so, so she, her, her platform was partly built on the need for replacing the constitution. Um, and and she, she really wanted to increase the protection of social rights, which we, all, we already have social rights in the constitution. And they're not protected enough, but they're not protected enough because public policy is not working well. Uh, and maybe because there are some things in the constitution that allow the right wing to have some sort of a bit of power. Um, there are some things in the constitution that can be perfected and change it. I think the powers of the constitutional court, for example, can be changed. But if we open the door to a complete replacement, we're not going to be able to speak specifically about those issues in a deep way. When you open the door for a complete constitutional replacement, it's like speaking about an omnibus bill, right? Where you need to discuss everything. Um, and, and we need to focus on what are the real issues here. Um, and the real issue is income inequality, is the cost of life, uh, is, is the people, like, like all people that should not be working, that, but they need to work because their retirement funds are not enough to allow them to pay for the metro. You know? uh, those are the things that we need to take care of. Uh, so in constitution, and also in constitutional terms, I think that we should be more European. Uh, we should increment, should continue with this idea of democratize, democratizing the constitution and turning the constitution in what, in what the society wants. Um, and this solution won't solve the problem of the prestige that the constitution has been losing. Um, but if it comes with a political agreement uh, a big bipartisan political agreement, I think it's it's possible. And that, that will be my, my my way to deal with this. But in the end, you know, this is, and nobody here, like in the end, this is a political solution. Um, and mm. there are, uh, like scholars are divided, as I told you in the beginning of, the, of our conversation. Some scholars want a complete replacement, opening the door to discuss everything. Um, and other scholars just, prefer to continue this agenda, you know, of let's fix what we have wrong. Um, and I think that the more we constitutionalize the problem, the, no, the more we ignore the real issues that we're having um, in the healthcare system, in the social security system, etc. So we should, we need less constitution, <laughs> I think. That, that, that will be my, my way to, sum, to summarize this. We need less of a constitutional issue. We need more of a public policy issue. But also with more politics, with, more, with a political narrative that uh, comes 
justify those reforms. Mm-hmm. Well, Sergio, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was incredibly helpful and informative, and I really enjoyed enjoyed talking to you. And I hope that the situation in Chile improves. Thank you very much, Maria. It was a pleasure to to be here, and it's also a pleasure to meet someone that studied both at Berkeley and, and NYU. <laughs> we share that in common. That's it's a, nice. a great combo. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> It is a great combo, the best combo. So go Bears. Oh, 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 oh,